and welcome to Afrocatalyst. I'm Akinio Cheng, your co-host. This podcast is brought to you by Botha Emerging Markets Group, a leading consultancy focused on the global south. Each month, we talk to trailblazers to understand the challenges and opportunities they face in pushing their industries forward. Our guest for the day is Professor William Mosley, who directs McAllister College's Food, Agriculture, and Society program, and also serves on the advisory panel to the United Nations Committee on World Food Security. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for inviting me. So to start off, what did the agricultural landscape in Africa look like in the pre-colonial era? I think uh, in many cases, small farmers were assistance oriented. They were producing food for their own households or for local markets. Um, I think in many um, semi-arid areas of Africa where rainfall was more variable, the systems were adapted to those environmental fluxes. So if it was a good production year, households would store surplus grain so that they could fall back on that in a, in a bad production. And sometimes you also saw that grain storage happening at the community level or even at the kingdom level. So sort of there were these strategies that were built in to deal with that type of environment. There are also um, relationships between um, herder communities and farming communities. Oftentimes the herders in the dry season would graze their cattle on the farmer's fields and the manure would fertilize those fields and the cattle could eat the, um, the stubble that was left in the fields. And so there was sort of a mutually advantageous symbiotic relationship between these two communities. Farmers also produce grain, that the herders bought and the herders produced milk that was um, sold or traded to the farming communities. There was also cash crop production. Um, you know, cotton is originally, um, you know, uh, domesticated in Egypt. And in the pre-colonial period, we do know that people were growing cotton um, and there was a sort of a lively textile industry for, for clothing. It sounds like in the pre-colonial era, there was a lot of, um, a big focus on community, a big focus on um, living in harmony with um, your natural landscape and systems. How did that change when colonial settlers arrived? Yeah, it changed rather significantly. Um, You know, the colonial powers had many different objectives, but one was um, to encourage their colonies to produce raw materials that would feed into industries uh, in Europe. And so I think a challenge for the the colonists was how do you reorient these local production systems away from producing things that are needed locally (laughs) towards producing things that are are needed for export. And they tried a variety of strategies. In some cases, they used forced labor, um, basically obligated farmers to spend a portion of their week working on collective fields, produce goods that would be exported. That worked to varying degrees. Um, A a strategy that came to be sort of seen as more effective was to impose a head tax. So households had to pay a tax for every family member. And then the only way they could earn the cash to pay that tax was either to grow crops for sale or to migrate and work. Um, And so increasingly, you know, people are growing 
crops that they're selling, that they're not keeping in the household for their own subsistence. Um, we also see the sort of breakdown of the grain storage strategies, both at the household community and sort of at the, at, at the broader level. And um, you talked about that breakdown, um, and I wonder, you know, to what extent that contributes to issues we have around food security here. Um, we have around food security today. What can modern agriculture learn from those um, indigenous farming techniques that perhaps were more common in the pre-colonial era? Yeah, I think, you know, globally, we often privilege sort of book learning, knowledge that people acquire at universities over experiential knowledge, knowledge that's acquired throughout a lifetime or passed down to you from your parents and grandparents. And so people had you know, deep, nuanced, sophisticated knowledge of local ecologies. They had developed a suite of agricultural practices that today we would call agroecology, but um, were already there in the African context. So things like intercropping, planting multiple crops in the same field, agroforestry, um, having trees in the field along with crops, low tillage strategies, which um, are better for conserving the organic matter in, in your soils. Um, and so all of these different approaches make a ton of sense in sort of tropical ecosystems. And in many ways were foreign to Europeans who were operating in the temperate environment and were not as familiar with you know, approaches that made more sense in a really different kind of ecosystem. Was there any difference? Um, I've always been interested in kind of how um, different colonial powers of different ways of, of, of um, sharing knowledge or, or governing. Was there any difference in kind of the, the ways that those colonial powers approach it between whether it be between French colonies or British colonies, Portuguese colonies, et cetera, and how they um, approach imparting that agricultural knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think they were broadly similar. Um, I mean, the Belgians are known for their sort of horrific treatment of people in, you know, what is today the DRC and use of forced labor and Terrible practices like cutting off people's limbs if they didn't agree to work to work in in, in fields. But I think you know um, some of the interesting differences between the British and the French were that the British had a system of indirect rule where they worked a lot through sort of local chiefs and leadership structure. The, the British also private companies more often, um, whereas the French had this policy of assimilation. They tended to have fewer people on the ground. They were mostly sort of military officials and they tended to work more through state structures. Um, and so you see this sort of reflected on the landscape today, these sort of historical difference between places that were colonized by the British or the French. And, um, you know, food security is a term that um, I think is really widely known, but but poorly understood. Can you walk us through kind of the basic, I guess, dimensions of food security and, and how food production fits into that framework? Yeah, so great question. And so I think um, increasingly scholars in the food security community um, acknowledge that there are six dimensions to food security. First one is 
the one we usually think about, which is food availability, most tightly connected to production. So how much food is available on the market. Um, and so you know, for a long time, the thinking was if you want to address hunger, just produce more food. In fact, early on, the United Nations, when they were monitoring hunger in different countries around the world, had this approach known as the food balance sheet approach, which was basically how much food is produced in the country, what are net food imports, and does that equal um, per capita caloric needs? And if it sort of balanced out, the thinking was you'd be okay. <laughs> Yet they were missing famines. These sort of catastrophic situations would occur and their methodology wasn't sort of predicting that this would happen, which leads us to thinking about the other five dimensions. So the second one is access, right? So just because the food is there, just because it's in the store doesn't necessarily mean you can you can put your hands on it. So um, Amartya Sen is a Nobel laureate Indian economist who's done a lot of work in this area. And he sort of framed this as entitlement. So people have legal entitlements to food. They may have enough income to buy it, or they may be producing it themselves, or in rural communities, there's sort of food sharing that happens between extended families or between neighbors. And for Sen, you know, a lot of times famines are the result of entitlement failure. It's people's inability to access that food rather than it just being an absolute lack of food. That's the second one, access. Third one is utilization, which I arguably is the most poorly understood and we think about the least. It's having the necessary infrastructure sort of cooking facilities, access to clean water, sanitation, in order to prepare healthy food. And, and I'll just give you an example of this and where it's become an issue. So in South Africa, um, you know, a lot of people have cook stoves that run off of um, propane or, or, or natural gas. And when the price of um, cooking fuel goes up, um, it becomes more and more expensive for people to cook at home. So you see people shifting away from foods that they're going to cook to sort of pre-prepared foods. They're often you know, less nutritious uh, and have contributed to you know, rising obesity rates in South Africa. Um, and so, um, and in my own country, this is a huge issue for the homeless population, right? If you don't have a kitchen, <laughs> It's really difficult to prepare a meal. So you, you go to a fast food outlet where the food just is not as good for you. And so I think oftentimes hunger, we think of caloric deficit, but you know, increasingly we wanna think about malnutrition in all its forms, just not calories, it's micronutrient deficiencies. Uh, obesity is another, another form of malnutrition, which is growing in, it's a growing problem in many African countries, especially the wealthier ones in North Africa and in Southern Africa. So that's utilization. The fourth dimension is stability. So stable prices and supplies over time. And so, you know, you do see you know, globally, we've had different shocks. The, the war in Ukraine is a classic example. You know, breadbasket of the world produces a significant amount of the world's grain. And then this 
hit a lot of North African countries in particular that were importing wheat from, from Ukraine. So that, that instability is a problem. The fifth dimension is sustainability, which is a newer dimension, but I think seems obvious to a lot of people. You know, we want to be able to produce food without undermining the natural resource base and your ability to produce food in the future. Um, and then the last one is agency. Um, and this is controversial in many ways, and it refers to people's sort of control over how they're producing food or the types of foods they're consuming. So does a, you know, how much control over a farmer, a farmer have over the types of food they're going to grow and the practices that they're going to use to produce that food. So if, you know, Monsanto has a monopoly on certain types of agricultural inputs or a huge market share, you know, farmers sort of choice is quite limited or on the consumption end, you know, with the supermarketization phenomena and a lot of African countries, sort of people's choice, locally appropriate foods, you know, traditional foods may be coming more constrained as those big retail outlets are moving into urban environments in particular. You've spoken and written about, you know, this notion of decolonizing agriculture. And I'm curious, when you talk about decolonizing agriculture, which of those dimensions are you really focused on? What do we need to be paying more attention to? And, and how should we be shifting as policymakers, um, as, as uh, consumers, our behavior, as farmers, et cetera? I mean, we often think of decolonization as a political phenomenon, um, uh, you know, which happens in African contexts, largely from the 1960s moving forward. But, you know, there's also this problem of the challenge of sort of um, the, the colonization of the mind and the, you know, sort of colonial perspectives that live on within academic discourses, which then influence the way we sort of approach different types of development challenges. So agronomy, um, and especially tropical agronomy, was really central to um, the colonial enterprise in many different African countries. And you had agronomists on the ground whose main job was to get local people to produce items in a particular way so that they could be exported to the, the colonial powers. Um, and, you know, that history sort of lives on in terms of the objectives and the science of agronomy and sort of this huge focus on production um, and it's it's influenced the way we think about hunger alleviation and and so I you know these highly productive practices maybe they make sense for some farmers wealthy farmers but you know it's really the poorest of the poor that are hungry uh, there's greater incidence of hunger in rural areas than in urban areas, although it's growing quite rapidly in many African cities. And so how do you help the poorest of the poor become more food secure? It's moving away from, you know, what I would call the Cadillac version of agriculture that's, you know, hyper energy intensive and people become indebted buying all these inputs and coming up with techniques that make more sense for, you know, 
relatively poor farmers, but then it just so happens that these are much better for the environment, they're more sustainable, people have more control over them. And so it, it touches on all these other dimensions of food security rather than that sort of productionist focus. Yeah, it seems like a, it, a lot of it is about right-sizing, right-sizing solutions um, for, for the people they're meant to serve. It's, it's been interesting to follow the food security discourse in, in Africa. You know, international donors, um, they'll often try and reach African farmers with new seeds, technology, ICT services. But as you well, well know, there's little evidence that that's actually contributing significantly to food security or to income. So what, why do you think we keep promoting these techniques? It's a great question. I mean, some of it, um, I think, goes back to this very simple notion of hunger being best addressed by production. So, you know, not having a more nuanced understanding of what's driving hunger. But also, I think many donors in the global community and philanthrocapitalists, you know, people who have been very successful in the private sector, they want to make the world a better place. I think their heart's in the right place, but coming out of the business community, oftentimes they think about problems in a certain way, right? So, um, you know, technology is key. Um, or just like in like a factory assembly line, you're gonna test a model, develop it, work out all the kinks, and then you're gonna massively scale it up and replicate it throughout the world. And that sort of obfuscates how every community is different, right? So what makes sense in central Iowa may not make sense in southern Mali. Um, and, and, and so I think that sort of technocratic bias, maybe more of that business bias has translated over into the way we think about you know, hunger alleviation. I think that small scale farmers or small scale agriculture often gets a, a gets a bad rap. Um, it's something we want to move away from as you know, we grow people's income, et cetera. But how, how do you think we can reshape how we talk about and engage those farmers? We mentioned this at the start of the interview, this sort of difference between book learning and experiential knowledge. And I, and I think there are power dynamics between those two different knowledge systems. And, and it's, not, it's not to say one is better than the other, but we need both. And so I think for a very long time, we've, we've really privileged um, you know, the book learning, the scientific knowledge, the people with the degrees. And we need to figure out a way to bring those two knowledge systems into communication with one another. So you know, if you're trying to address a problem in Burkina Faso, you need farmers at the table who's that's their lived experience and they understand that situation. And, you know, I think outside expertise, people who've been trained at the university can be useful too, but sort of bringing those two things into conversation with one another. I also think a lot of agricultural extension staff, so these are the, you know, these are the public employees in the Ministry of Agriculture who go out and work with farmers. The way they've been trained at university leads to a certain level of bias. And frankly, I mean, it's changing, but a lot of these people are men as well. And there are fewer women, even though women produce 70% of the food in the African context. And so you have these sort of 
you know, men that go out that have a particular bias and there's, you know, and they're, they're working, trying to work with farmers, but, but the, the sort of local perspective on this gets discounted person in coming in to sort of work with the, with, with the community. It's um, I love that your perspective on kind of needing both. Um, and so are there places, um, whether it's in Africa or beyond, where you see um, that people begin to respect both perspectives and privilege both perspectives of the small scale farmer and also that kind of larger, um, larger um, agricultural system? You know, agroecology is an emerging science. I first studied ag- agroecology 30 years ago, and it was very marginal and sort of picking up steam now, but agroecologists think about farm fields as an ecosystem, a simplified ecosystem that humans are managing to produce food or some other type of crop. And the the basic argument is that if you understand those ecological interactions, you can leverage them to your advantage. So rather than just planting one crop in a field where you're going to have lots of insect and soil fertility problems and have to use all these chemical inputs, plant multiple crops and ideally crops that work together well. So, you know, a common combination where I work in Burkina Faso is sort of sorghum and cowpeas and the cowpeas fix nitrogen that is is used by the the, the sorghum. Or parkland agroforestry systems, we have trees in the field they slow down wind speeds over the soil in, in the dry season and cut down on windborne erosion. Or trees may have economic benefit, like shade trees that women harvest the nuts and they're used locally for cooking oil, but there's an international market for, for, for shea nuts, which are used in a lot of cosmetics. It's also a cocoa butter substitute in coffee. But this, these, this sort of, agroecological framework, which is very much, you know, based on a lot of traditional African practices, um, you know, there are sort of historic examples. So a good one is Thomas Sankara, who is this Marxist leader in Burkina Faso in the 1980s. He didn't use the word, but he was basically arguing for greater self-sufficiency and agroecological approaches. Um, I think more recently today in Senegal, um, there's there they have a, well, he's now the former minister of agriculture who was trained as an agronomist, traditional agronomist. He sort of realizes that the sort of traditional agronomic approach is not working. And he's come to recognize that agroecology makes a lot more sense. So there's, um, think new and interesting experiments going on in Senegal and certain NGOs are also working on this. And for the first time, we also have donors that are supporting this approach. Sadly, none from my country, but um, (laughs) there's now sort of different European countries that are supporting uh, research on agroecology. So even though Agroecology may be based on traditional techniques. It doesn't mean you can't experiment and make it better. And so, you know, most agricultural research is very sort of the traditional produce more, you know, hybrid seeds, chemical inputs. Well, we need research on these other methods. 
right, which are going to be more sustainable, more appropriate for lower income farmers. Thank you for that. Um, I perhaps actually should have started off the conversation in this way, but I'm curious, kind of, how did you, um, how did you land on kind of um, decolonizing agriculture as, as a as a subject you wanted to focus on, and kind of, um, what is the state of your research today? What are you What are you interested in? What are you um, focused on with respect to Afri- African agriculture? I mean, I'll tell you a brief story. So I I um, first started working in African context in the mid-1980s. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Southern Mali in Central West Africa. And I was um, in a small community of 200 people. And I was sent there to sort of promote community gardening and nutrition. And when I arrived and I was at a counterpart in the Ministry of Agriculture, it quickly became clear to me that all they were really interested in was producing more cotton. So, you know, I go to these monthly meetings with all the other ag extension agents and there are sort of these endless discussions about meeting cotton quotas. And this, I was there in the aftermath of a big famine in the mid 1980s. And like, I couldn't figure out like, why aren't we more focused on food production? Why are, why are we having these endless conversations about cotton production? And Mali, like many other African countries, had gone through neoliberal economic reform or structural adjustment in the 80s and then continuing into the, 2000, into the 1990s. And you know, this was in the aftermath of the third world debt crisis and you know, the World Bank and the IMF were, you know, the thinking was countries need to focus on those goods for which they have a comparative advantage. A lot of African countries, that was commodity crops and mining. And, um, you know, this very sort of narrow focus on export-oriented crops in order to promote growth and, you know, pay back the debts that were owed to the World Bank and the IMF. But that thinking, you know, I sort of subsequently came to realize is not new. I mean, it's a, it's a form of neocolonialism. We were forcing African countries, not only at the macro level to go back to, you know, a more simplified economy where you're focusing on what we call primary economic activities and geography. So agriculture and mining and, you know, winding down the industrialization that had happened in the 60s and 70s, um, but also the way that agriculture was being promoted was um, sort of very reminiscent of the approach to agriculture that was happening in the colonial period. So it's, you know, I think over a 30-year sort of career, I just came to realize that that these, these approaches have deep historical roots. I'm I'm currently um, taking a break from field work. Um, I had I had had a big research project in Burkina Faso looking at the New Green Revolution for Africa, but um, that project's winding down, and I'm working on a book on decolonizing African agriculture, which is mainly focused on four countries where I've spent a lot of time working: Mali, Burkina Faso, Botswana, and South Africa. 
Well, I know that I, and certainly probably a lot of readers of this podcast, look forward to reading that one day. So so thank you so much for spending time with us and, and breaking down this really fascinating subject. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to AfroCatalyst, presented by both the Emerging Markets Group. Visit AfroCatalyst.com for more. Remember to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with future episodes. And let us know what you think by rating us wherever you're listening. I'm Akinio Cheng. Until next time.